Welcome to the Development Policy Centre. In this podcast, you'll hear Jonathan Pickering, Carola Batsold, Ian Fry and George Carter discussing the extent and nature of climate change financing in the Pacific, its governance and Australia's contribution. The podcast brings together experts on international climate change policy and climate finance in the Pacific. We hope you enjoy the lecture. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Ngunnawal people, uh, and paying respects to their elders past and present. Uh, this discussion is being hosted by the Development Policy Centre in partnership with the University of Canberra's Centre for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance. Um, and I want to thank um, Jonathan Pickering, uh, as well as Carola Betzold, um, for actually coming up with the idea of uh, hosting uh, this seminar. Um, I think it's a, a timely discussion, um, given efforts underway in the Pacific to access global climate financing um, and also ongoing interesting concepts such as uh, loss and damage about which we'll we'll hear shortly. Um, This seminar also fits uh, quite nicely into the Development Policy Centre's program of work. Um, So we focus our program on three uh, core areas, uh, Australian aid, um, PNG and the Pacific uh, and global development. Um, obviously this fits very clearly into the focus on PNG in the Pacific, which are very much at the forefront uh, of climate change impacts. Um, it also fits nicely into Australian aid, um, given the importance of, uh, of climate responses as part of the Australian aid program, and we'll, we'll hear a little bit about that shortly. Uh, and increasingly the global development dialogue um, is more and more focused on climate change, as we've seen with the um, sustainable development goals. Um, We want to make sure that we have as much time as possible for discussion, so I've asked the presenters to keep their talks short to around 15 minutes, um, and that way we'll have maybe a little bit under uh, one hour for discussion. Um, We'll hear from all four presenters, first of all, uh, and then we'll um, get them up the front and and we'll have a discussion with the audience in which which you're welcome to um, ask questions and, and provide comments. Uh, I might introduce the speakers now just so that uh, we get that out of the road and to minimise disruptions later. So speaking first is Jonathan Pickering, who is seated (coughs) right here. Um, So Jonathan, I'm sure many of you will know from his his time here at ANU where he completed his PhD. Uh, He's now based at the Centre for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra. His research interests include the ethical and political dimensions uh, of global climate change policy, global environmental governance, development policy, ethics and global justice. Uh, And I should mention that prior to coming to ANU, uh, Jonathan um, also worked uh, in in the Australian Aid Program. Um, So Jonathan will kickstart discussions um, by presenting um, on Australia's climate financing, um, uh, providing a broader context for climate-related aid in the Pacific. Uh, next, we'll hear from Carola Betzold, um, instead of here right next to me. Um, she is a visiting fellow with the Development Policy Centre. Uh, Carola joins us from the University of Antwerp, where she is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Institute for Development Policy and Management. Um, her research centres on environmental uh, and, in particular, climate change politics. Um, and she's working on research examining links between development aid and um, adaptation uh, to climate change. So Carola will be presenting um, uh, some quantitative analysis that she's done on the amount of climate change adaptation financing being received by Pacific Island countries. Uh, And she actually presented that work um, only last week in Fiji. So well done on on presenting again this week. 
Um, third, uh, we'll hear from Ian Fry, uh, and I'm sure most of you will uh, know Ian or will have heard of him. Um, so he uh, seated over here. Um, he's an international environmental law and policy expert. Uh, his research focus um, is primarily on mitigation policies associated with the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and its related agreements. Um, Ian is based here at ANU, but in his spare time, he's also the Ambassador for Climate Change and Environment for the Government of Tuvalu. Um, and he's worked for the Tuvalu Government for the last 16 years. So, of course, in that position, he's been a very active player um, in the climate change negotiations, and he's agreed to um, speak to us today about financing for loss and damage, and in particular, possible arrangements for a Pacific Islands climate change insurance facility. Last but not least uh, is George Carter, who's seated right next to Ian over there. Um, George is another ANU affiliate. Um, he's based at the State Society and Governance in Melanesia program, uh, where he's completing a PhD examining Pacific Islands coalitions and diplomacy in climate change negotiations. Um, so George is really active uh, in this space. Um, as a Samoan, he um, organises a, a myriad of events related to, to um, Pacific Pacifica students. Um, he was formerly the Vice President of the ANU Postgraduate and Research Student Association. Uh, he received the Prime Minister's Australia Pacific Award um, and the SSGM Pacific Scholar Award. Um, George will present on climate change negotiations, um, climate politics <coughs> and climate governance. So uh, that's enough from me, I think. Uh, I'm sure you'd all like to hear from Jonathan. So, Jonathan, please. Thanks very much, Matt, for the kind introduction, and um, thanks everyone for coming along today. Um, so, as, as Matt mentioned, yeah, we're talking about Australia's climate finance in the Pacific um, in the context of um, the broader political um, circumstances in which um, Australia's overall climate finance across different regions um, has been operating. Um, so I'm sure many of you will be more familiar with uh, a lot of the implementation issues um, in specific Pacific Island countries. So this is somewhat of a, of a broader um, big picture presentation. And so as Matt mentioned in his introduction, clearly the issue of climate finance in the Pacific is a, a relevant one, um, a timely one, not just because of um, growing risks to Pacific Island countries due to climate change, uh, but also because <coughs> of the commitment that Australia made um, uh, in the Paris Climate Summit uh, late last year uh, to provide $1 billion um, in climate change funding over the next five years. So one of the key questions there is about what role will funding for the Pacific play in, in, that, in that context. So I'll start with a fairly quick go through Australia's international support uh, for climate finance. Um, before turning to some ideas of, uh, about future funding priorities under this new commitment. So some of this early material is, is based on a paper I've um, been writing with um, Paul Mitchell, who some of you may know as well. Um, uh, we've been taking a, a sort of broader look at the politics of climate finance over in Australia over the last decade or so. So there's actually a fairly long history of um, Australian support for climate change in the, in the Pacific, um, really begin, beginning with the South Pacific Sea Level and Climate Monitoring Project, which ran from um, the early 1990s till about um, 2010. But Australia's 
uh, climate change funding didn't really ramp up until, well, first of all, um, mitigation-related funding uh, under the late Howard government in 2007. Um, some of you will remember the Global Initiative on Forest and Climate, which didn't have much of a Pacific focus initially, except for a small and quite troubled partnership with um, PNG on, on forest carbon. It was really more once uh, the change of government occurred to, uh, to Labor uh, that, that we saw a boost um, in climate change related funding to the Pacific, particularly with the launch of the International Climate Change Adaptation Initiative um, in 2008. So eventually this, uh, this program um, it ended up being a, a long-term program for about $300 million, about half of which went to the, uh, went to the Pacific. Um, so the, um, sorry, I'll, I'll come back to this, um, which some of you may, may be familiar with as, as well. So one of the major pl uh, planks of the, uh, the, the program was a Pacific Climate Change Science Program um, conducting conjunction with um, uh, CSIRO and the, the Australian Bureau of Meteorology and to generate new projections of climate change impacts um, that would be relevant for decision makers in the Pacific. So this was one of the more highly regarded um, parts of the, of the program, but other parts of the, um, the program relating to sort of adaptation strategy, development, capacity building and so on, um, struggled um, due to a range of issues, which a, a review of the, these programs several years ago um, highlighted. Um, but still, there have been a few interesting uh, developments from, from this and some of the related, uh, some of the related programs, one of which um, is quite nice, um, was an animation developed by the science <coughs> program to try and um, uh, develop, uh, to try and disseminate some of its scientific um, findings. This is the Adventures of the Pacific Climate Crab, um, and there's a nice animation which is still online which looks at um, changing uh, weather and climate patterns um, through the Pacific and, and what they mean for, uh, for, for different countries. I skipped over this, but this was one of the sort of impetuses for, uh, for the Labor government's early um, action on, on climate change adaptation in the, in the Pacific, a fairly dramatically titled um, report from 2006 when, when Labor was still in, in opposition. And this then later informed um, the, the Labor government's work in this area. So we saw uh, under, during the Labor period a, a substantial increase in, in climate change funding, particularly after um, the UN Climate Change Conference in 2009 in Copenhagen, uh, where wealthy countries committed uh, to a fast start finance program over about uh, three years. Australia um, committed around $200 million a year. Oh, okay, thanks. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, over. Oh, sorry. That would be a year one. There we go. Uh, $200 million over three years. And during this, this time, there was a substantial expansion in its funding for the Pacific and also um, in other countries as well. And there are. I think lots of different examples of funding that we could talk about um, uh, that, that were supported during this time, but I have a very brief um, number of examples which, which anyone would be familiar with is um, uh, 
support for improved water storage during drought conditions in Tuvalu. And the Kiribati Adaptation um, Project, I quite like this uh, um, fairly, um, uh, what we say, uh, <coughs> fairly clear um, outline of the, the, some, the, the choices basically to island countries. So what's, um, what's happened in the meantime? If we go back to overall um, trends, we saw with the change of government in, in 2013, um, a substantial, though temporary, drop um, in climate change financing with the election of um, the, the coalition government led by Tony Abbott. And for it, I think it's fair to say that during this, this time, uh, climate change was a bit of a dirty word in the aid program. There was a lot of, um, well, uh, th there was very little mention in policies um, and programs of, of climate change, although there was um, sort of broader discussion of resilience and so on. Uh, but in general, fairly limited sort of design of new climate change related programs. And so this has had some implications for um, what's happened in the Pacific as well. Now, depending on which data sources you look at, the, the trends may be a little different and Rolla will we'll, um, discuss more about um, specific funding trends, but these, these figures from UN reports and the OECD um, certainly show um, a, a downward trend uh, in this is in adaptation funding towards the Pacific, which has always um, represented the bulk of Australia's climate funding in the Pacific. There's been um, much more emphasis on adaptation compared to mitigation, um, reducing greenhouse emissions. So this trend, although we've seen this happen um, in the context of uh, uh, um, an aid program that's been cut substantially, the trend isn't uniform across all regions. So this is using the OECD data. Um, so over these four years, we see a substantial drop, whereas in East and Southeast Asia, we see a drop uh, with the change of government, but not as dramatic a drop as in the Pacific. So as I mentioned um, at the UN Climate Summit last year, uh, the Prime Minister, Mark Turner, uh, committed $1 billion over five years towards climate change funding through the aid program. It sounds like a lot, but it's really, it really largely sets a floor on some of the more recent levels of funding at about to 2020-2021. And actually, if you look at how this trend fits into what other countries are doing, um, Australia's share of uh, wealthy countries' climate finance has been dropping, has dropped considerably, um, while other countries are ramping up their funding. So still, the, the numbers themselves of, of Australia's own funding aren't um, the, whole, the whole picture. One of the other important um, aspects of Australia's role in, in, in this area is, is as a mediator um, to um, help um, Pacific Island countries to access other sources of funding. And this has been um, a, a focus for a new, a new partnership with the German uh, development agency, GIZ, 
um, a $2 million partnership, which is, I think, um, launched earlier this, this year to help Australian, uh, to, to help Pacific Island countries access a broader range of funds uh, through the UN Green Climate Fund and um, other multilateral institutions. And here's a nice picture of um, the co-chairs of the Green Climate Fund um, uh, showing their commitment to harmonisation. I don't know if you can see the, um, the green pants so well in that slide, but um, on our left, um, this is um, uh, de facto Federal Secretary Ewan MacDonald and um, South African co-chair after uh, here. here. So what then could Australia do to, to strengthen its support in the Pacific for responding to climate change? So as I mentioned um, before, in the, in the last few years, we've seen a, a decline um, in, in new programs being, um, being designed. This is just a, a sum, a very broad um, picture of more regional uh, programs. So it doesn't really focus so much on, uh, on, on uh, bilateral funding for, uh, for climate change through the aid program. But we've seen um, these substantial number of programs during the, the fast start period, um, a number of programs which were able to continue um, were extended um, despite the, the climate change being uh, more um, off the radar for a, for a few years. But what we see now is, uh, well, there are a lot of question marks about what happens during this, this period that the, the $1 billion commitment um, extends to. Australia has um, made a commitment to a, a multi-donor climate risk early warning systems program, which covers not just the Pacific but other um, least developed, well, but least developed countries and um, small island developing states, um, which is a, I think, a plausible um, a approach um, in a context where um, there are a few few years of lost opportunities to catch up on. But there's still a need for a clear a clearly articulated um, strategy of assistance um, across the across the Pacific. The, the Australian program needs to uh, needs to develop this. So, in terms of uh, a number of um, priorities, one of the um, one of the most important things, in my view at least, um, is a, a consistent and um, principled approach to mainstreaming. Um, of, of climate change concerns. So although we've seen um, some of these standalone climate change programs and certainly say in the climate science area, um, it's understandable that there've been um, some of these standalone programs. And by and large, in terms of responding to impacts, the, the impacts of climate change are not detached <coughs> from all other uh, development concerns, but very much, you know, climate change will affect health, agriculture, water, and so on. And so, um, responses to these issues need to be thought through in the context of other um, of of existing um, development priorities. In looking at in looking at priorities um, in um, particular areas, there are a few sources of um, re recent sources of information. One is um, countries' in intended nationally determined contributions under the. Uh, under the, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, although um, a lot of these tend to emphasise um, opportunities for mitigation rather than adaptation. 
Um, so in looking at um, broader climate change priorities, it's likely that, we'll, um, that, that the aid program will need to look beyond the INDCs. Um, you know, some of the some countries' national adaptation programs of action are now well are in place, but um, often fairly um, uh, fairly old now, and so um, it's going to vary across countries as to to what what will be the best um, way of of aligning with countries' priorities. At the same time, um, okay, so yeah, I'm, I'm almost done. So at the same time. If the mainstream um, mainstreaming approach is is going to work well and is going to have some broader legitimacy, it will need to address concerns um, about the diversion of aid funding from existing priorities, which has been a, um, a long-standing issue in the in the UN climate change negotiations. One of the difficulties from for Australia's aid program at the moment is that any of this one billion dollar commitment. Um, is coming out of a, an aid program that has already seen substantial cuts, unlike under the Labor government where the boost in climate change funding was happening under a growing aid program. Having said that, if, um, uh, if, if um, broader aid program trends don't, um, don't change, there are some other things that are still essential uh, for, for the aid program to do. So one of, one of them is about um, a, a systematic and consistent response to um, screening of climate ri risks across all parts um, of um, aid program to, to the Pacific. So what are the implications of climate change for, uh, for existing sectors? What sorts of um, additional funding requirements might be needed in order to, um, in, in order to manage um, current and future climate risks? And the other, the other aspect, uh, which relates back to um, one of those earlier slides where we saw some quite, quite different uh, data on where the climate funding to the Pacific is actually going, is rigorous approach to accounting of climate-related activities. So I understand that um, there has been work um, in the aid program uh, going on for some time, as other countries are doing as well, to try and develop a clearer approach to um, identifying climate-related aspects of assistance. Um, but uh, a systematic approach would certainly help to um, reduce concerns that there's um, double counting going on or a simple process of rebadging. Okay, so that works. Thanks. I think I only have one little bit to go. So the, the last point um, really was that there is a tension of sorts between um, the, the mainstreaming approach, uh, integration approach, and um, a pressure which I assume, um, if, if the aid program is anything like it was when I was there uh, a while ago, um, pressure to, be, to develop sort of announceables or initiatives that are, are noticeably, you know, have an Australian um, a connection with them. But the, the pressure for you know, um, activities that can be cut with a ribbon um, shouldn't detract from the, uh, the importance um, of mainstream. Rather than just having some sort of um, standalone um, activity, a mainstream approach could still be um, packaged into a broader partnership that signals uh, a longer-term and substantial commitment to the Pacific in this area. There are plenty of other um, areas I'm sure that a strategy could um, address, but I'll, I'll leave it um, there now and I'll um, we'll look forward to um, the discussion.
Thanks very much. Jonathan, and thank you for sticking to time. Um, so as I said, we'll take questions at the end. Uh, so next up we have uh, Carola. Uh, yeah, thanks all for coming. So my name is Carola Betzel, as Matt said in the beginning. Um, Okay, now send a note behind the computer because I think it's hard to see me up behind behind the computer. Uh, so I'm usually based at the University of Antwerp in Belgium, but I'm currently here as a as a teach as a research fellow, uh, and my work looks at adaptation to climate change with a specific focus on small island developing states, um, and I focus here on the links between development aids and adaptation to climate change. So it's a very nice complement to what. Uh, to the presentation we've just seen by Jonathan. I'll take a bit of a broader look and look at all the adaptation aid flows that have come into the Pacific um, in the period from 2010 to 2014, for which we have data. <coughs> so I don't need to remind you of the Copenhagen pledge in 29 to provide or to mobilize $100 billion in climate finance um, per year by 2020 to support both mitigation and adaptation um, in the global south and developing countries. And as you also probably know, much of this $100 billion, or much of what, ha what has been mobilized so far, goes into <coughs> mitigation. Adaptation is a much smaller part. Uh, the last estimates um, are about 16% of all climate finance going into adaptation. But as Jonathan also said already, and Matt in the introduction, the adaptation part is of, uh, much more important in the, to the Pacific Island countries and territories compared to mitigation, because they are very, very small emitters of greenhouse gas emissions. Now this graph here shows um, global adaptation aid, or as reported in the OECD data and the credited reporting system, and I'll come to the data sources and the problems with the data in just a moment. And so this is cumulative data from 2010 to 2014, and you can see that the Pacific Island regions received just a small share of this global um, adaptation aid. It's about 2% of all adaptation aid that has been dispersed in the, in the period, at, at least as reported in the OECD that has gone into the Pacific. And what I want to do today is to like, take a closer look at this, sorry, at the $700 million that have been dispersed to the Pacific for adaptation to climate change. So I want to use the OECD data to map out this adaptation aid and basically answer three questions. One is, what is the overall, overall volume of adaptation aid that the Pacific island countries and territories have received in a period of time? Who has given that aid and who has received it? Um, and I've done a little bit more in, in a full paper that's shortly going to be available as a development policy discussion paper, so you're welcome to have a look at that. Um, but I don't have the time to go through all that, uh, all, all these extra questions that I post on the paper. So to cut it short, the answer to these three questions are A, um, adaptation aid is a small share of global adaptation aid, as you've seen on a previous slide. But adaptation aid is also a small share of total development aid that has come into the Pacific um, in this period. In terms of who's giving the aid, it's mostly a few bilateral donors, and it's notably Australia, who is the by far largest provider of adaptation aid to the Pacific. And then finally, if we look at who's getting the aid, we see that the um, adaptation aid is distributed very unevenly among the Pacific island countries and territories, and that holds regardless of whether we look at 
total adaptation aid flows, which I'll do here, uh, or whether we look at um, adaptation aid flows per capita or adaptation aid as a percent of total development aid. So before I take a closer look at the data, a few words on this data. So as I said, the OECD introduced a so-called real market for adaptation in 2010 after the Copenhagen pledge. So since then we have data so that since then the donors have been required to mark those parts of their aid that is relevant for adaptation or that they deem relevant for adaptation. And this real marker makes a distinction between principal <coughs> adaptation aid and significant adaptation aid. So principal adaptation aid is projects where that mainly target adaptation that would not have happened if it wasn't for adaptation to climate change. Whereas significant adaptation aid, that's projects um, that do that actually target something else, but there is a significant adaptation co-benefit. Um, then as I already said, this relies totally on donors' own classification of what they deem um, is, is relevant for adaptation. And there have been lots of criticism of, of over-reporting. We heard about the double accounting just a moment ago. Um, so clearly these data need to be taken with caution and not at face value, but it's the best, the most comprehensive data that we have at the, at the moment. Then just to clarify, and these figures here refer to both to disbursements, so not commitments, commitments are slightly higher, um, not too much actually, but, um, but, but a bit higher. And then it also, the data here includes both loans and grants. So to be fair, uh, the vast majority of funding that has come into the region has come as, as grants and not as loans. But this is, there's a small share of, of adaptation aid that has come as loans and that hence will need to be paid back. So let's actually look at the data. This is total development aid to the Pacific regions as reported in the OECD creditor reporting system. Um, class, uh, according to this adaptation marker. So as you can see, there's basically f uh, four categories that you can see from this adaptation marker. We have in blue, development aid that, has, that is not targeting adaptation, that is not relevant for adaptation. The lighter blue bars actually have been screened against adaptation, have been irrelevant for adaptation. The darker blue is not been screened but it's likely that it's not targeting adaptation. So the green bars are actually what is of interest here. You can see it's a very small share, and that's um, the project where adaptation is either a the principal purpose, that's the darker green, or a significant co-benefit, that's the, um, sorry, what did I say? The, the lighter green is the significant, so that's adaptation is a side benefit, and the darker green is the principal adaptation aid, so that's really um, projects that mainly go for adaptation. You can see that adaptation aid in 2010 is a, is a tiny share of all of the development aid, and that's partly because not all the donors have started to apply the real market for adaptation immediately after this introduction. Australia, for instance, started only in 2011. Um, you can also see that even after 2010, adaptation aid is a small share. It's about 7% uh, of all development aid to the Pacific that has been marked as relevant for adaptation. And what's hard to see from this graph, but what we can see in the data is that from 2011 through to 2014, adaptation aid has declined steadily, and that's largely due to Australian aid going down since 2011. And that's certainly not so good news, because adaptation needs will not have come, uh, gone down in that same period. And to what extent the Australian pledge made just before Paris will reverse the trend um, remains to be seen. So the second question is, uh, who's getting this aid? If you just look the, at, the, at the green, the adaptation aid, the green share, and this is total volumes, um, 
drivers appeared. So you can see that the largest share, it's about 28% of all the adaptation aid into the Pacific, um, targets regional programs. And in the OECD data, it's, uh, you cannot see which countries receive that aid. So it's just, we just have to take it as regional. You can see that within the regional programs, the majority of projects actually have um, adaptation as their principal purpose. Um, I don't want to get into too much detail here. The, the additional point that I want to make in this graph is that you can see it's distributed unevenly, and of course, to some extent, that's partly because um, the population sizes are very different among the Pacific Island countries and territories. But as I said before, even if you look, for instance, at per capita flows, you'll see that the, there's a very uneven distribution among the Pacific Island countries and territories. And I don't want to make, um, I don't want to uh, uh, try to explain this distribution as there's work being done here to look at um, how donors actually decide on, on how, um, whom to give adaptation aid to. And partly, um, there is some evidence that vulnerability matters, but I, can, I don't think that vulnerability can explain the differences in adaptation aid funding in the Pacific Island countries. So the final question that, that I want to answer here is who's actually giving the aid? And that's what you can see in this graph. Um, I, dis I distinguish between multilateral donors and bilateral donors, so the upper half of the graph is multilateral providers of aid, and the lower half is the bilateral donors, so the bilateral providers of adaptation aid. What you can see that there's a very small number of donors who are active in the Pacific region, so it's a, just really a handful of actors and will provide adaptation support to the Pacific. And it's largely bilateral donors, the multilateral donors provide just a small share of overall um, adaptation aid to the Pacific, and here it's mostly the European Union. So the European Union is the largest uh, multilateral provider of adaptation aid in the Pacific. There's only two additional players here, at least as reported in the OECD data. That's the adaptation fund. And then there's a very small share from the climate investment fund. And the Green Climate Fund was mentioned before, so maybe with the introduction of the Green Climate Fund, um, we'll see more, of a, more funding from multilateral actors in the Pacific. And then among the first projects that have been approved by the Green Climate Fund, there is projects in the Pacific. So likely the, multi the share of multilateral aid will go up in the future. And that may also partly be because the bilateral share is going down. So you can see the bilateral shares are by far most important, and Australia is by far the most important provider, bilateral provider, um, and overall provider of adaptation aid in the region. So actually, Australia accounts for two thirds of all of the bilateral adaptation aid that has come into the region, and um, it accounts for over fifty-five percent of all the um, adaptation aid that has come into the region. So New Zealand, and Australia, New Zealand, and Japan. And the other two large bilateral providers, and that's not surprising given that these are other big, uh, important neighbors. And then there's a few others. There's Germany, which is actually where I come from. And so it's, I'm pleased to see that Germany is, is making a difference in the Pacific. And there's a few other bilateral donors, although these mostly um, support the regional programs, so they're not active in individual countries. As I said, I did more, more of an analysis of this OECD data in the paper, but in the, because of time, um, I'll, I'll stop it here. What I want to say is, uh, concluding remarks is, A, of course, I know that this is imperfect data. I said before, the OECD relies totally on donors 
own classification, and it's not always clear why a specific project has been marked as, as relevant for adaptation. Um, there's also only limited data, so often it's actually impossible to follow through the, the donor's um, classification and, and assess to what extent um, adaptation aid is really adaptation aid. So there, there should be more efforts to track and monitor adaptation aid beyond the OECD data. And to some extent, the, the Paris Agreement and the negotiations and discussions about um, reporting guidelines about definitions um, may help to answer that question in the future. But I think what we can learn from the data nonetheless is that A, we do, we do need scaled up and particularly more predictable funding in the future for, for Pacific Islands um, to adapt, um, including in the long term. And then, as I said, we do need clearer definitions and reporting guidelines so we can be sure that even if we see an upward trend in the, in, in the OECD data, that really means more adaptation on the ground. And then finally, the, adaptation, the monitoring of adaptation aid shouldn't stop at the donor side, but it should also just as important to look within recipient countries, what is the adaptation aid used for, and to what extent really does it help recipients increase their resilience and reduce their vulnerability. Um, with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention, and I do look forward to any comments and questions you may have. Thanks. Thanks very much, Carola. Uh, so, um, and Carola's uh, discussion paper will actually come out on the Development Policy website um, this week, uh, and we'll be promoting it in the newsletter that goes out on Friday, so please do take a look. Uh, next we have um, Ian. Thank you very much and thank you for inviting me to come on and give a talk. What I want to talk about is as an initiative that's been proposed by the Tuvalu government as a consequence of uh, discussions coming out of the Paris Agreement, particularly on Article 8 of the agreement in relation to loss and damage. So the idea is, to, uh, is being proposed as a sort of climate change insurance facility to help countries rebuild after the impacts of climate change. Uh, um, if we look at some of the estimated damages that have occurred as a result of recent cyclone activity, you can see that uh, Cyclone Pam estimated cost to Vanuatu uh, $449 million US dollars, Tuvalu uh, was $11 million. And this actual photograph here is a, a picture of the, the, the part of the impacts of Cyclone Pam on Tuvalu. For three of the islands, waves washed right across the entire island, uh, killing all the, the, uh, the crops, washing away livestock and uh, causing other sorts of damage. Uh, Cyclone Winston, uh, current estimates are around about $470 million. Uh, Cyclone Xena, which occurred not long after uh, Winston, the, the total costs of damage uh, haven't been calculated but caused significant flooding damage, particularly around the Nandi area of uh, Fiji. And at the same time, uh, there was a significant drought in the Marshall Islands. So these are large costs, uh, growing appears, appears to be a sort of growing costs 
associated with, uh, with uh, cyclones and other climate-related events. If we look at some of the sort of humanitarian assistance provided to Fiji post-Winston, uh, it's an odd mix of, of donations that came through. According to uh, Foreign Affairs uh, estimates, uh, 35 million plus uh, Australian defence personnel and assets were deployed for Cyclone Winston. Uh, the ABC uh, joined with the Red Cross to raise 1.4 million. Westpac had its own uh, run funding, which led to 100,000. Uh, the UN Office of Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, 38.6 million. European U Commission, 1 million. And all sorts of other odd things like Red R, which I'm not sure what Red R is, provided experts and even tons of soap were provided as, a, as development assistance. So what, what a, a simple conclusion you can draw from this is that disaster relief aid, while welcome, is often ad hoc in its nature, uh, coming as promises. Often these promises are not, uh, sometimes these promises are not even met. There is a sort of transitory nature of promises. Uh, evidence shown that uh, the promises that were made to Haiti after the major disasters were not realised because there was a major flood in Pakistan not long after. So the, the disaster relief agencies moved, moved away in those regards. It's not often timely. Uh, there, there is a, a time gap between when pledges are made and when the pledges are received. Uh, it's insufficient to meet the costs of, of the damage that's occurred. And uh, as I said, they may not be filled despite the promises. So there is a very ad hoc nature to disaster relief uh, in, in these sorts of situations. So there has been a bit of work done in the Pacific to sort of look at ways of dealing with that. The uh, Pacific Catastrophe Risk Insurance Pilot was launched in 2013. It was a sort of World Bank funded initiative and then piloted uh, uh, six island countries part of that. And this is one of the, the issues about the ad hoc nature of this sort of work is that we constantly in the Pacific receive pilot projects where countries are sort of highlighted out in this. Uh, um, and there might be, you know, two from Polynesia, two from Micronesia and two from Melanesia or whatever. There's a sort of ad hoc nature in who these countries are that are piloted in this uh, sort of programs. There have been some work done by UNESCO and the UN Secretary General, its climate change office, uh, uh, began a dialogue about a program called Anticipate, Absorb, Reshape, which was to try and extend the Caribbean Catastrophe Risk Insurance Facility to bring it into the Pacific. This was only an initial dialogue and I was involved with discussions with the Secretary General's office about this initiative. There's also some work on uh, global framework for climate services in the Pacific, uh, more along uh, you know, assistance to meteorological services. So these are some of the sort of uh, types of initiatives that are floating around. Um, but there are other sort of global initiatives, particularly in relation to, to insurance, that are worth looking at to see whether these provide a useful model for, for what could happen in the Pacific. The Caribbean Catastrophe Risk Insurance Facility is one of these 
which is an index-based insurance facility. There are other initiatives, access to insurance initiative, ProPoor, market, insurance markets in Asia, ILO, etc. So these are all sorts of insurance, regional insurance-related uh, facilities that, that are um, floating around at the moment. So the idea was to sort of draw on the outcomes of the Paris Climate Change Agreement, particularly Article 8, which talks about uh, calling for cooperation facilitation of risk insurance facilities, risk client, uh, climate risk pooling and other insurance options, solutions uh, that need, to, uh, need a facility to address climate change impacts. And the, the big issue about this is is that we, we're now having to acknowledge that some of these disasters have a human signal, a climate change-related signal within them. So it goes beyond what is normally considered as natural disasters. The Pacific has obviously suffered natural disasters throughout its history. But I think, uh, based on the science that we're now seeing coming out of the IPCC, we're seeing a human signal in the current disasters. They're more severe as predicted by the IPCC. And therefore, there is a sort of a, 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 an anthropogenic nature to these disasters. And we need to recognise this. And there is a tension within the Pacific, within the regional organisations, whether these are still called natural disasters or they are climate change disasters. And I think this has that debate has significant implications for the finance for this sort of work. So the idea was to establish a Pacific climate change insurance facility um, based similar lines along what the, the Caribbean is, so it would be a parametric weather index. So this is, you get, if you reach a certain wind speed or some other sort of uh, weather trigger, you get an automatic payout. Um, so it could be number of days since rain, it could be wind speed, uh, or it could be amount of rain per period of time. These are calculated through, through uh, insurance arrangements to work out what they are, and then the country gets an immediate payout. Uh, the idea of this is to give the country a boost, an immediate boost, to deal with this disaster. It certainly does not represent the full cost of damage. One of the advantages of these sort of quick payouts is that you don't have to send in assessors to determine the damage before you get a payout. So that's the, Neville, uh, the, the sort of concept. But of course, the downside to that is that you never get the full amount of rehabilitation after these disasters. So the idea of this arrangement would be to have a sort of two levels. One, an initial payout, and second would be to try and have a payout due to assessed damage uh, as a way of topping up the amount. Um, <clears throat> but within the context of this whole sort of uh, Pacific insurance arrangement would be uh, to look at other more specific insurance arrangements. There could be in health insurance for climate-related diseases, fish stocks, uh, etc. So there could be sector-based insurance arrangements as well as part of this uh, proposal. Um, then you get to the sort of vexing question of the long-term climate change events. The insurance industry obviously is not in, is, likes to hedge its bets. It's based on 
predictions whether or not something will occur. These ones are likely to occur as a result of climate change and therefore the insurance industry may not like to, to um, invest in these sorts of insurance arrangements. Nevertheless, you know, there are models around like uh, life insurance, for instance, where uh, death is inevitable and therefore you can uh, create some sort of insurance arrange around an inevitable event. So these are the longer term events uh, and the impacts are clearly more significant in that regard. So that such things as sea level rise, ocean acidification through the increased carbon dioxide in the, in the, in the waters <laughs> and eventual population displacement and the, and the costs associated with dealing with populations that are displaced. So that's a, another sort of longer term uh, a consideration that needs to be taken on board within this. Um, how could this operate within the region? Well, there's a couple of options. It could be a specialisation agent of one of the Pacific Island uh, of the Pacific Island Forum. So, the African Risk Capacity is part of a specialised agency of the African Union. So, it could fit that model. It could be a sort of standalone entity overseen by uh, Pacific Island ministers. Um, and one other arrangement would be to have a, a Pacific, uh, Pacific Island Climate Change Roundtable that would uh, occur annually to bring together um, insurers, climate change adaptation experts, governments, NGOs, insurance policy researchers. And there has been some work uh, certainly done with Munich Climate Insurance Initiative uh, hosted by UNU to look at these sorts of initiatives. And part of this is uh, flowed from the, the Nansen Initiative. Um, one other aspect of this arrangement could be for a clearinghouse to help with sort of sub-regional uh, insurance arrangements. Again, sector-wide arrangements, tourist industry, agriculture, fisheries and things like that. So it's not just... You know, it's a sort of package of options, I guess, that's being looked at at the moment. So where does the money come from? Clearly, the region itself doesn't have the financial resources to, to input into an insurance arrangement that would pay out at the levels that are necessary. The Caribbean Catastrophe Risk Insurance Facility has uh, external donors that put into the fund. Each country puts in a small premium or a premium that they can afford and their payout is commensurate to how much they put into it. Nevertheless, there is a, a large donor base behind that as well. So this would have to be along similar lines. There would have to be a major donor base for, for, uh, for, for putting into this. And there are other you know, existing international financial institutions Green Climate Fund and Special Climate Change Fund could be a source of this. One, one NGO has been working on a levy on the global fossil fuel industry as a, as a possible option for supporting this. How likely that is, uh, is a matter of uh, uh, considerable dialogue, I guess. Uh, certainly the, the, uh, the oil transportation industry puts money into a catastrophe fund for shipping disasters. So this could be a potential model for dealing with that. But uh, clearly this is uh, an idea that's floating around. So <clears throat> one of the 
the United Nations Environment Programme looked at these sorts of uh, sustainable insurance initiative and found that insurance itself has uh, a number of key barriers. Uh, and this, these will have to be looked at clearly. Low levels of financial literacy and engagement with financial services. So this is, you know, governments knowing what's available and how to deal with sort of insurance arrangements. Lack of needed risk data to uh, calculate the, the risk as opposed to what, what is, uh, is uh, returnable and perceived cost ineffectiveness of products. So these are, uh, <coughs> and other regulatory barriers. So insurance is not an easy issue to deal with and I, for one, am not an insurance expert. Uh, but clearly these are things that can be worked through through a dialogue process. So what's the next step in this proposal? Certainly um, we, we need to have a dialogue about this and to bring countries together and experts to work with this. The, the, the Prime Minister of Tuvalu met with Helen Clark, the Administrator of UNDP, in April this year in New York uh, around the margins of the uh, Paris Agreement signing ceremony and as a consequence of that, the UNDP indicated they would be willing to uh, facilitate a regional dialogue on this to get this off the ground. So there's clearly some level of interest, with uh, certainly with UNDP, about this. And so it'll be now up to uh, the Tuvalu government and UNDP and regional organisations to try and um, get together and organise a meeting. So this is just a proposal, it's sort of one one sort of uh, step in the whole issue of dealing with uh, the impacts of climate change and loss and damage. And hopefully something will happen. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Ian. So um, next we have uh, George Carter. And... Um, if you have questions for Ian, which I do, please note them down and there'll be plenty of time after this. Do you want to talk? Uh, sure. Oh, oh, oh. That's okay. Um, thank you for um, the policy for the invitation to come speak today and also thank you to SSGM for having me to be here. <laughs> um, just a quick presentation. This is just a snapshot of three bodies of work that I'm working on right now, a chapter on the PhD thesis, um, something that I presented earlier this year at San Yat-sen University, and a working paper uh, for SSGM. So I'll just give you some germs in climate governance partnerships in the Pacific. The other speakers spoke about what's going on in the global sphere and also uh, pro, um, proposals uh, in the climate change space. I'll just talk about what's happening uh, within the Pacific. Um, I usually go overboard, so I'll start with the main points so that you, I get it out of the way, so that if I don't have time, um, forgive me. Um, so here I'm trying to say that climate finance governance in the region and also, also within the national governments are in a state of flux. There's a messy entanglement of translating international frameworks with national climate change priorities and attempts for regional mechanisms. Um, access for finance is the top priority for uh, Pacific Island countries and addressing questions and debates of climate governance as significant light of nutrients in climate partnerships. Uh, so that's 
the whole main points of the whole presentation. Bear with me, uh, hopefully I cover right through to the end. Uh, so just the outline of this, I'll be talking first on what I think the climate industry that we have in the region at the moment. From I'm a political, I mean, I'm an international relations diplomacy person. So I tend to look at uh, through multilateral, regional, national. I'll just give you next, um, a snapshot of uh, UNFCC uh, Pacific um, uh, positions at the Paris um, uh, that deal with finance. Something on from the regional, I'll give you the current draft of uh, where discussions are at the moment with the SDRP. Um, national, I give you a sort of look at Samoa as an idea of a climate state. Um, and then I'll hopefully with time, there's a um, uh, discussion around existing and new climate partnerships. I, I, I guess for the past presentation, we've been talking about uh, bilateral, multilateral, plurilateral uh, partnerships. I'd like to also emphasize the new idea of unique partnerships with philanthropy groups and the idea of South-South cooperation that's starting to um, come, uh, starting to come uh, within the climate change space. Um, UNCC global climate change, you know, um, let's, let's start with Copenhagen Accord, of course, 2009, uh, we threw in there $30 billion. As with every problem, once you throw money at the problem, uh, without any guidelines, there is uh, a messy, uh, without any governance, uh, without any structure, it becomes very messy. And this really translates within the Pacific as well. And this whole idea that we are in the space of um, we'll be looking at uh, with funding for development aid is to deal with poverty alleviation with outcomes or goals. On the other side, with climate change, it's something that we'll be living with uh, for the rest of our lives uh, without an outcome, without a goal. And so um, this, this whole idea of um, funding for uh, development which deals with poverty alleviation or um, and and uh, funding for climate change that does not have an end. Um, and sort of what the Paris Agreement last year has given us is sort of a guideline, well, it says that the industry will last us for up to 2030 and beyond. Um, so these were sort of the positions that the Pacific Island countries took to Paris. Um, and you'll see that probably Five out of six of these key positions, a lot of had to do with finance, finance for mitigation, finance for adaptation, uh, finance for loss and damage. Um, post Paris and sort of what they're looking at this, um, starting from this year onwards, you also see again there the special consideration for SIDS um, scale up finance, mm -hmm. um, especially for GCF, uh, least development fund, uh, etc., and also funding streams for loss and damage. Another interesting, uh, um, uh, something that always has been within Pacific Island coalitions is idea of SITS, rep uh, uh, SITS taking up representation of seats within the UNFCC bodies and also boards uh, for right now, I think Tuvalu is on the um, loss and damage um, board. Solomon's Islands is the SITS rep on the adaptation of correct me, uh, uh, Ian, if I'm wrong and Samoa is currently is the SITS rep on GCF. So there is this strategy of trying to get uh, Pacific representation specifically for these SITS seats. Uh, this is just a snapshot of where climate finance is so, uh, discussed in the region. This is just 2015. And as you'll see, there's a whole list of different forums in which the conversation around climate finance is discussed. And it, 
ranges from you know negotiations within Bonn uh, and uh, and France, but also within Pacific Island states, uh, regional organizations. You see the Climate Change Roundtable uh, within SBC, within SPRIP, within Pacific Island Forum, within Pacific Island Development Forum. I guess what this sort of messy mapping says it's it's not just one particular uh, organization or uh, institution that's dealing with climate finance and climate uh, governance issues it's a whole broad of, uh, of different organizations different parties different stakeholders and this uh, you know and uh, this is just one year itself and you know um, uh, investor fire was also saying you're having their sort of through the mix other informal sessions through workshops dealing finance. This doesn't even include GCF's financing. This doesn't include ADP's financing workshops. So there's a whole, uh, I guess, a lot of stakeholders, a lot of people working in the space of climate finance. Nevertheless, there have been attempts of creating some sort of regional uh, Pacific uh, climate governance. It started off in 2005, SPRIP had its own um, framework for action on climate change. And a lot of this uh, started off with bringing forward awareness on the issue of climate change, while SBC focused more on disaster risk reduction. Now, you know, 2009, uh, I tend to argue, is a watershed moment for climate uh, uh, politics, where we threw money in the, in the problem. And of course, 2011, the Pacific Island Forum, the key political um, uh, uh, agency in, um, in the Pacific, um, stated there that we need to uh, put up the priority of securing appropriate government arrangements, aid disparate modalities, procedures, and accommodate the particular constraints of foreign island countries and development climate financing opportunities. So what you have since 2011 is a whole lot of um, reports, um, research going into how Pacific island countries or individual island countries can attain um, uh, the different uh, sort of climate financing available out there. And there was, you know, what came out of sort of 2011, this idea of a, uh, they brought about um, the Pacific Climate Change Financial Regional Framework, and they said we need to have some sort of one framework that brings together all these multiple groups, all these multiple frameworks that we have. And since 2011, uh, a committee was set up that went around the region to try and find, uh, talking with governments, talking with stakeholders, trying to find what this framework is, and I think that's something that um, uh, our first speaker was trying to say, that we need some sort of concerted effort. There is an attempt at the moment. Um, it was supposed to be passed last year. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that was taken off the table at the Foreign Island Leaders at the um, PI, um, Pacific Island Forum in Port Moresby, and they'll be bringing this up again this year. But there is still, and this was trying to bring together, um, and it goes along with, what uh, Ambassador Fry was saying, this whole idea of the debate between disaster risk reduction and climate change, trying to put them together into this strategy for climate disaster resilient development, SDRP. Uh, there's a current draft that's being circulated at the moment, but what it is, this SDRP is, it's focusing on these sort of priorities for 2015 to 2025. Um, they've identified these uh, sort of uh, projections of uh, climate, in, climate impacts in, uh, up to 25, such as sea level rise, ocean acidification, and water-related disasters. So this is the, um, the foreseeable sort of um, uh, region, uh, climate impact, uh, climate impact, 
But what it is, is trying to set up into three key, um, uh, key three pillars. And the first one is sort of strengthening this integrated risk management to enhance climate and disaster resilience. The second goal is to have low carbon development. Uh, and this is in the area of climate mitigation, energy, security, and infrastructure. The, goal, the third goal is strengthen disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. The whole idea is trying to have a, some sort of climate mainstream, uh, not only a whole of country, whole of government, but a whole of region. So this is an attempt to try uh, at the moment to bring together all these multi-stakeholders, all these multi-partners. Uh, 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 but at the same time, uh, what it's also trying there to uh, target is the streamlining, mainstreaming of uh, climate change throughout all sectors of development, which is very because it brings it's important because it brings into this um, idea of where PIF sits, the Pacific Island Forum, where it sits within this whole regional debate or discussion, not debate, discussion on climate change. What's their role in the climate change regional space? Of course, you have SPRIP and SBC uh, with dealing with disaster risk reduction and the other one dealing with climate change uh, adaptation mitigation. PIF wants to come in as the uh, sort of the central political unit, the central uh, support unit. So underneath the SDRP committee, there's a SDRP support unit which sits within Pacific Island Forum. And what it wants to be, I guess, is the broker of the region in, these, in this idea of Pacific Re Resilience Partnership. It wants to sort of um, map out and, um, and seize out what's going on um, I guess bringing together all the different climate finance that's coming in the region, climate change projects that are climate coming in the Pacific. And this is where PIF is trying to situate itself as sort of the climate broker uh, for the region. And, uh, you know, they tend to be overlooking sort of uh, what it wants to do is, uh, you know, coordinating the different uh, programs and projects in climate change. Yeah. So that's happening in the region. Um, I'd like to move on to a national governance, a model that's currently out there. Now, uh, I had a quick glance of all the different governance, uh, uh, finance governance, and all other than Tuvalu, Kiribati, and Marshall Islands, which have their climate change, uh, sort of main cl uh, climate change divisions that sits under the office of the prime minister and the office of um, the presidents, only Samoa and Fiji, which I say, is, has some sort of division within the Ministry of Finance that deals directly with climate finance. And all these, uh, uh, these uh, what these um, divisions do is they just pump out proposals, right? Proposals on climate change adaptation, climate change mitigations. That's their only work, is to do coordination of all projects that are coming in on that deal with climate change at the same time reporting on these uh, divisions. But with Samoa, um, as most of you would know, I mean, uh, would know it's, it has a, you know, a, a bureaucratic age structure that has been this, uh, which has been well-developed, a well-oiled machine. And part of that when in 2005, when we had NAPAs, I mean, the uh, adaptation programs, Samoa was quickly moved from um, uh, streamlining um, NAPAs into eight sectors uh, of its 23 development sectors. So it not only had, well, while it had already established its 23 development sectors, it mainstreamed eight of its climate change sectors within that development. So these eight departments were just churning out reports, I mean, proposals that deal with climate change um, 
projects and adaptation. I think one of the, um, maybe Carola would correct me later on, is Samoa actually has the highest uh, uh, proposal, uh, adaptation, proposal received per capita, something like that, uh, as one responsive would say. Uh, mainly because of this bureaucratic system that, I mean, this, uh, this uh, body machine that it has um, in turning out uh, climate change uh, uh, proposals and also reporting. Um, in 2014, it stepped up a gear and that's sort of mirroring what the SDRP is looking and now it's mainstreaming throughout the, all through the 23 development sectors, not just the, three, not just the eight, uh, but through the all 23. And this whole idea of whole, whole of country, whole of government. This similar trend is, uh, part of this, there was a UNDP funded uh, uh, report that looked into how uh, budgets and institutions within governments can deal with climate, uh, climate finance. This similar trend is now happening in Fiji, sorry, not 2015, 2016. This year, it moved its climate uh, change from Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs that only dealt with negotiations it's the Ministry of Finance, which in another five days we'll call the Ministry of Economy. It's situated, it's uh, climate finance and all that, and that, that sole purpose of that whole um, division is just to be uh, writing up proposals and implementing, I mean, uh, um, and coordinating all climate uh, uh, projects coming within Fiji. And also at the same time, which is the same thing that Sam was looking to, it's become uh, national implementing entities for the various funds. This is sort of the uh, uh, sort of a glance at the different sort of uh, funding sources that are available in, within the region. I think it's something that um, Carola touched upon. Um, but in terms of climate partnerships, I think we also, as I've said, move from just looking at bilateral, multilateral, plurilateral. I think we're now also in a space where we're seeing new uh, partners. Uh, not the, I don't call them development partners. I would like to call them climate partners moving into the space. South-South cooperation, something that I'm working on at the moment with a couple of scholars looking at how China can work within um, the climate change space within the Pacific. But also we also need to look at um, this interesting idea of philanthropic groups coming and working within the region, which how Pacific countries or governments can sort of try and, um, well, I guess, control the coming in of, of philanthropic groups uh, within the, uh, uh, with working within the region. But it also begs the question, as one person said to me, what, what stops Rio Tinto coming into Samoa and building a road, you know, funded by Rio Tinto? So this is the space that we're moving into. I guess we should not be just looking at bilateral, bilateral and plurilateral um, uh, climate partnerships. We should also be looking at the, the different, the new modality, I mean, the new ways of um, uh, climate partnerships and, you know, Pacific Island countries with nothing to lose if you're in the need of projects, it's much more, you know, ideas of accepting these sort of new proposals um, uh, for ideas of partnerships is, uh, uh, it's not, you know, not a far-fetched idea. Um, and again, those are the key points, and I guess I've made it into the 15 minutes. And can I get all our presenters just here at the front? So we have about 40, 40 minutes for questions. Um, 
We might take them in groups. So, does anyone want to kick off? Yeah, at the back. And, and, so can you um, also just please introduce yourself and um, speak with a loud voice because we're actually recording for a podcast. I'm just interested in the, the concept of a climate change insurance facility as distinct from a natural disaster insurance facility, given that an insurance, um, insurance doesn't actually pay out until something has happened, whereas in effect when you're thinking about climate adaptation, the intention should really be to make sure you don't get the effects um, that you're worried about. And when you're talking about the kind of things climate, insur climate insurance facility might respond to, I don't see any particular difference between that and a cyclone or a drought that might be occurring anyway. The consequences are the same, and it just seems peculiar to have an insurance facility dealing with one and not the other. Thank you. What I would say follows on precisely from that. I'm very supportive of the idea of an insurance model for dealing with um, these issues in the Pacific. But I think if you call it a structure as a climate change insurance facility, you create the potential for a debate about whether a particular catastrophe is caused by climate change and therefore whether it has a call on the fund or not. Whereas if it is, uh, a catastrophe risk insurance facility, you don't have that problem. So I, think I agree with the, the gentleman there. But I also think, can I make one other question to you that might sort of follow and then a suggestion? The idea that was canvassed in one of the uh, discussions that you referred to about extending the Caribbean uh, facility has an appeal in that it broadens the base for the insurance and reduces the, the concentration risk because you tend to get disasters happening in the Pacific to more than one country at a time. Whereas if you then think that the Caribbean's consequences and impact are seasonally and obviously geographically different. So I think there's some merit in that. And the, other, the suggestion is before you can seriously talk about finance, you need to get some actuarial assessment of the, the risk. And I found in dealing with issues, and these are the domestic Australian issues, but I think it would be consistent, that the Institute of Actuaries love to be asked to do pro bono work because they have all these skills and they do boring things in insurance and they love to be involved in big national and in this case, international projects. So I think if you spoke to the Institute of Actuaries in Australia or New Zealand or maybe uh, some global body, but I don't know it exists, um, you would find people enthusiastically uh, keen to use their, their resource, their skills, to give you some data on which you can start to base your cost of your funding models. Thank you. Very much, Bob. Does this relate to the same question? Oh, the, the same area? Or on the insurance? Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> Please, yes. Thank you. Uh, Shannon Ryan from World Vision Australia. So, I should start off by saying that 
Um, we're also looking into um, risk insurance, not just in the Pacific, but in other places. So it'd be a great conversation to, to follow up on. Um, I think the, the two points that you outlaid about the, the um, index-based type of insurance and then the actuarial um, type of insurance are actually two really different things and have very different um, cost structures associated with them and all those type of things. So trying to put those together is something that I haven't seen before. You seem to either have index-based models or, or actuarial models. Um, and, and Bob's point around the, the risk function is a really critical one when you're doing index-based insurance. And, you know, it depends on what data you have available and um, all those type of things. But I think the bigger point is that there's examples of index-based insurance in really difficult environments. Nomadic pastoralists in northern Kenya now have you know, an index-based livestock insurance um, product that's rolling out. And you know, there's some probably similarity of challenges in the Pacific and some completely novel ones. But you know, the barriers, I think, can be overcome by smart people in the Institute of Actuarialists and, and others that do this type of stuff. Um, and I guess just the other question to throw into the mix, I think you mentioned it a little bit, um, is around climate risk advisory services. Insurance companies don't just kind of, you know, have insurance products, but they have risk advisory services to reduce the risk of those um, appearing. So it'd be interesting to know if any of those um, conversations have been have been had. And the beauty of drawing those in is that they, um, you know, they may come up with novel ways of adaptation that that haven't been thought of by, you know, climate adaptation professionals coming at it from a different angle. Thank you very much. I might just get in to respond to those questions and then we'll move on to, to different topics. Well, thank you very much. And uh, they're all good questions. And obviously, it's a grey area between what you determine as a sort of natural disaster compared to the climate change disaster. Uh, and, and the definition may not be necessary. The, the only thing about that is, is that if we acknowledge that these disasters are now more severe as a consequence of climate change, there is, there is a, a broader responsibility for dealing with those. And I think that's the critical aspect of this, this issue, is that it's not... Un, un, under the Sendai program of disaster risk reduction, most of the emphasis under Sendai is on the recipient country to deal with its own problems. Whereas if we acknowledge that this is a broader issue, that it has a climate change signal associated with it, then there's a greater responsibility of the global committee to deal with that. And that brings a greater finance and support for it. And I think we have to acknowledge we've moved on beyond these events just being natural disasters. And we have to accept that, these are, that there is a climate change element to them. And therefore, there is a responsibility to the global community to deal with that. And I think that's, that's the crucial message that we're trying to get out of this arrangement, that it, it can't be just dealt with by the region itself. So I think that, that's, that's the critical the difference between those. Um, if you broaden the base of, say, for instance, the, the, the Caribbean, I, I mean, the, the pilot program that was dealt with, uh, you know, under, under the World Bank in the Pacific was tsunamis, earthquakes and, and, and cyclones. Um, two were clearly, you know, so, uh, natural events, you know, the, uh, geological events. The cyclones is one of those events that sort of crosses over between natural and climate change. And, of course, the, the insurance industry likes to, you know, hedge its bets on, on things that, are, that have low likelihood of success and therefore they can spread their risk. And certainly tsunamis and earthquakes are some of those, obviously, in parts of the region which are, you know, 
unstable, the likelihood of earthquakes or tsunamis are higher than others. But, but you know, there is the issue of that we're facing a global concern about climate change and we have to deal with that. Um, with respect to Bob's comments about aerial assistance, well, clearly this is a discussion we have to open up to all sorts of uh, support. We have had discussions, uh, you know, as part of the small island states with a number of reinsurance agencies, Munich, Munich Re um, and uh, some of the others. And, and they are already thinking about these sorts of things and they are already working on risk assessment. We don't have to do a lot of work for them to, uh, to do this sort of risk assessment. They've already got some sort of estimates already floating around. But any sort of assistance that can be provided will be well worth it. Clearly, the sort of two structures of insurance from, from uh, index-based insurance to a sort of broader uh, actuarial insurance is obviously a challenge and to bridge those two. Uh, certainly, you know, just using an index base is not going to give the sort of payout the countries need. The, the, the amounts that are given out in index-based insurance is clearly not enough to deal with the sort of certain disasters, for instance, that Fiji has had to deal with and not, not uh, you know, be able to build. One, one of the things I just come back from Fiji from a field to field school, and the government is currently giving out $7,000 to each uh, householder that has completely lost the house. That's 7,000 Fiji dollars to rebuild the house. And, and that is now, people are rebuilding houses that are more vulnerable to the impacts of cyclones than what they were in the first place because using $7,000 is not going to build you a more resilient house. And this is part of what the value of insurance is, is that it, it, it deals to some extent with the concept of build back better. And so hopefully that will you know, drive uh, you know, finance that will build back more resilient houses. So that's, that's part of it. Obviously the difficulty is, you know, will we ever get you know, a financial payout in any form that will help a country like Fiji rebuild to the stage it was before Cyclone Winston. And we have to explore what that might be. Uh, and uh, to give immediate relief, but also to give a relief to countries that fail to build back. Because Pacific Island countries just can't afford to continue this sort of, you know, uh, building back uh, from these sorts of disasters and to be able to afford to do that. Uh, and, and this is a critical issue. Um, there are some very useful examples floating around of sort of uh, insurance arrangements. Malawi has had a crop insurance, but that was funded by, uh, by UK aid, and that's <coughs> now sort of um, dried up. And so there, there are issues with longevity of, of uh, support, and therefore we have to think about what are the arrangements we can provide to give longevity of support for these sorts of initiatives. So they can't be just sort of one-off events. So um, certainly, you know, climate risk advisory services are all important in, in, in the mix in, you know, identifying the risk, uh, identifying how to limit the risk, and this is all part of a continuum associated with adaptation. Clearly, you know, the preference would be to build the resilience of Pacific Island countries to the impacts of climate change. That has to be the first sort of step. To, to build resilience, have effective adaptation programs. But inevitably, it won't be enough. 
it's clearly no matter how well we build our adaptation support in the region, it will not be enough. And therefore, we have to build a contingency for dealing with those situations where it won't be enough. Uh, you know, the, these are very broad answers and I don't have concrete solutions to these things. I think it's part of an ongoing discussion. Thank you. Yeah, um, sure, just um, a quick um, comment on that, to follow on from that, it relates a little bit to, to Bob's comment too, that um, some of, I guess with some of the slow in onset um, impacts that you, that you mentioned, the, that um, causation issue is less of a concern in that, that sense because there is a clear climate change attribution um, there. So um, there's a question there, I suppose, about whether um, that's another reason for dealing with slow onset events differently from... Um, from say uh, catastrophic events and, and so on. Um, I guess the only other uh, point to add was just in terms of um, you know beyond in, uh, insurance, um, looking at other sort of non-financial ways of dealing with loss and damage to. Um, and you mentioned climate displacement, um, and I guess that's another um, area that Australia um, will need to explore um, further down the, the, the track about measures there, um, to whether to assist with special migration programs or the like, um, in addition to, to financial measures. Thank you. Actually, just while we're on insurance, um, I was wondering, um, do you have any thoughts on lessons from the Pacific Catastrophic Risk Insurance Facility, the, the World Bank? Um, Only, <coughs> I, I mean, the three things that dealt with three factors, uh, you know, two of those are clearly sort of geological and one, you know, that crosses the sort of boundary between is it natural or is it climate related. Uh, you know, uh, Tonga got a payout from, uh, from that insurance from Cyclone Offer, I think it was 1.2 million, I'm not sure, but, um, but it certainly got a payout from, from, from that. Um, but again, it, there was no longevity of the funding and that's that's the whole issue it's it was a pilot that only targeted a limited number of countries and there's no guarantee of longevity of funding and that's that's the problem all right do we have other questions Stephen? well just one more on insurance and then i'll ask another one yeah, i thought the pacifics agreed to continue that fund and they're actually going to put some money in uh, itself so I'm, uh, I'm not so convinced about the, uh, you know, that it's going to disappear. Uh, having said that, definitely it's, a, it's only a modest part of the solution. And if we look around uh, developed countries, we don't use these insurance funds for nations. So I'm pretty sceptical about them being a big part of the solution in developing countries. I, I, was, I was just in Fiji in Sudakate, and the ADB said something interesting that they are sort of pre negotiating these disaster response agreements. So, you know, it's like everything's agreed except the amount. So you still have to do, because that is so difficult to assess uh, and, and to index. So. But uh, it will certainly cut down the negotiation time and make, make sure the money uh, comes more quickly. But the other question I want to ask to go beyond insurance, uh, again from the Pacific Update, you know, one of the, just discussed with someone from the forum, Pacific Island Forum, they said to me, you know, these days if you want to get anything up, you've got to link it to climate change. It is like the only issue people are now discussing. And it sounds like you know, maybe the money has kind of, gone up and down a bit, but I guess people are anticipating a lot more money. And do you see that as a as a positive, or is it going to distort priorities in the Pacific and mean that other, perhaps more or other immediate priorities, such as uh, relating to health, are going to get neglected because there isn't going to be the same amount of money on the table? Thanks, David. Um, any other questions? There's one at the back here, can you see? 
Thanks. Um, <clears throat> Jenny Wells from Oxford, Australia. I um, just was interested in a number of points across the, <clears throat> the different presentations and really wanted to ask a little bit more around uh, perhaps quality and standards. Um, that last point around why not Rio Tinto really you know, came to the fore. And, um, there's no doubt that you know, disasters are becoming more prevalent and more severe, and the impact in the Pacific is extreme. I think um, the, you know, the, the funding that is available that Anne was talking about, humanitarian funding, disaster response funding, it was never meant. The mandate is not there for rebuilding. It's there to save lives. Um, so what do we do? Um, and I think in terms of having worked in the Pacific and seen some of the impacts, you know, I think there's a mix of issues there, but for me it comes back down to, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, the, the quality of the aid that's gone in. And I'll give an example in both the Marshall Islands and Tuvalu with the recent um, water crises. You know, you go in <clears throat> to look at how you can respond and the water tanks aren't maintained, the water gutters that has been funded through a you know is not connected they've run out of water we have to come provide assistance so i guess my question is really i think if we looked at insurance and it did improve the quality of the aid that went in in the first place um, as well as you know enabling governments the national governments which i think is one of the first points to actually own that and incorporate that into development plans so I guess the question is to the, um, you know, just to the panel around how important is that quality of interventions in this climate change, this seeking of more and more and more funding for climate change or climate financing? Thank you. Do we have another question? I might throw one in just um, for, for Corolla and, and also for George. Um, I, I was actually struck at um, the extent to which regional organisations received um, that, uh, that climate tag um, aid. <coughs> so um, do you think that's a good outcome or should more aid be going to, to governments um, and, and being um, channeled at the country level? Sure, yeah, I can say perhaps a little bit in response to Stephen and Jenny's um, comments. Um, so I, I guess about that concern that uh, with the sort of political prominence of climate change that there might um, you know, be funding diverted from other, from other priorities. Um, well, I mean, certainly, certainly if overall funding able, available to Pacific Island countries remains, you know, um, static, um, then that's, a, that's clearly a problem. Um, on the other on the other hand, if um, if funding overall increases, let's say in line with commitments to the Sustainable Development Goals, then there's no necessary incompatibility with increasing focus on climate change and um, achieving these other development priorities. And there's a um, clear sort of uh, synergies between the two. Um, and in, in many ways, I'd say it would be seen as a good thing that climate change has greater um, domestic priority within Pacific Island countries. Um, I think it's been a little bit variable over time, sort of looking back, say, a, de a decade or so, but um, increasingly more, um, more uh, a, a national priority. So 
Um, that then one would hope has implications for the, the, the quality and effectiveness of assistance that, that can be provided too. Um, and, and I suppose on that on that question, yeah, I, I guess a lot of the just the general caveats in terms of um, development effectiveness need to be taken into account into in, in climate change funding. And that's one of the risks of a complete, completely separate approach to, to climate change funding, that a lot of these lessons uh, from experience will, will be lost. Um, one of the one of the sort of um, ongoing difficulties is about well how do you measure you know um, increase in um, you know resilience to climate change and things like that and I, and I suppose that's that's where that broader understanding of resilience that's that's maybe not just resilience to you know um, ex uncertain impact but to a whole range of um, of, of impacts is, is going to be important for sort of underpinning the rationale for why certain programs should be undertaken or not. Uh, yeah, I think my answer about the, the comments that I have to make relate to all the three questions, whether adaptation or climate change is placing other priorities, the quality of the interventions, and then also at what level should we target A. I think the, the question of the quality and also the longevity, which was mentioned before, is, is crucial. I think more money doesn't necessarily mean more adaptation or better adaptation. <coughs> um, and if you look, if, if um, I, I didn't have the time to go into that detail, in the presentation, but if you look at the OECD data and if you look at um, individual projects, there's really a quite large question mark not only as to whether that is really adaptation, but also as to whether it really helps the recipients. So one is whether it is really adaptation is of course up for grabs because there is no definition of what adaptation is and arguably any type of development is adaptation because more the more resources you have, the better you are able to cope with climate change impacts. So and, and in, that, in that sense, you could of course call any type of an F development adaptation and it wouldn't necessarily displace other priorities. But I think that the other question on the quality of the intervention, whether projects that are called adaptation it really help the recipients is, is questionable and it's related also with the longevity. So another project that I've been sort of starting to explore is to look at adaptation to coastal erosion and flooding and the one sort of very popular response measure that is often funded by aid is seawalls. Um, and I've done some research in the Comoros, but I think the experience in the Comoros um, is very similar to the to experiences in many Pacific places. And that is where the donors bring in funding to build seawalls, which is also sort of the national priority. What is, if you ask local stakeholders, this is kind of the, the, the traditional response, what they know and what they think is effective. But if you look at, at, at these seawalls, it's really just sort of vertical walls built at the top of the beach. And as you can imagine, like the waves just crush in with with more energy and actually leads to more erosion rather than less erosion. Um, and the, the seawalls, because it's often pilot projects, they're not maintained. So they just sort of break and leave the places behind the sea, which is as exposed, if not more exposed um, than before, because there's now less money to do other sorts of things that would be a more long, take on sort of a longer term perspective. So I think it, it's, it's very important to look at the, at the quality of the intervention and to think about the long term and to what extent really and these are the responses that we need in the long term to say to, to increase resilience in the long term. So even if the seawall may, may, may look like a, a good idea for sort of a, the length of a pilot project, and it certainly may help um, protect property for the duration of the pilot project, in the long term, this is certainly not the wisest use of money. And because, as, as Ian Fry said before, um, there never be, be enough funds, we should really think very carefully about how to spend the money as wisely as we can. 
Well, <clears throat> to Steve's question, I guess, you know, what for the Pacific, I think climate change is one of the biggest threats to the, to the region. Uh, clearly, um, it has to be given a priority in that respect. Obviously, there are other major issues. Uh, Non-communicable diseases are clearly uh, part of that. There are health issues. There are other sorts of development issues that have to be met within the region. But in the long term, climate change is clearly, uh, you know, one of the biggest and potential existential threats to some Pacific Island countries. So it has to be given some sort of level of priority. Uh, that doesn't mean that other funding shouldn't be considered for these other issues. You know, I'm not, I'm not an expert on, on regional aid across all sectors, I guess, so I couldn't say which what is should be given more priority in that context. But I think clearly for, for the Pacific region, climate change is, you know, one, one of the greatest threats that the region has faced in its history. Um, with respect to, uh, to the quality of aid, obviously that's a part of a broad discussion about the quality of aid per se. You know, I, I've seen all sorts of projects in Tuvalu, uh, some have worked and some haven't. Um, you know, and part of that is introducing technology that may be not be appropriate, uh, that may look good on, on surface but cannot be maintained because people can't afford to maintain it. And, and there are all sorts of uh, issues around, around that. So uh, clearly the quality of aid as part of this and hopefully through, as you suggest, you know, through the, the inclusion of insurance within this, the insurance industry helps to, to motivate this sort of build back better arrangement. Thank you. Thank you. George? Thank you. I, I tend to look at the question more from the recipient, um, and that's sort of where my research plays uh, is the focus. And I guess in the idea of is, is there an expectation? Yes, I think there is a fair amount of expectation of receiving more um, uh, in terms of uh, climate aid or climate finance. And of course, that's what the, the 2011 uh, Leaders Forum communicates spelled out. We need to really invest. Uh, not only resources, but also invest in sort of some sort of institutional framework that can help us get access to these funds. And so there is, and, and, and that's sort of not only at the regional priority, but also as you started to see now in the trend, um, is more countries more uh, putting that within their own bureaucracies. And um, that trend is, is um, as I said, is, is going on. And in terms of quality of aid interventions, um, also, again, looking from the uh, perspective of the recipients, is there is also while there is this big expectation, it's also uh, they don't have the capacity uh, to absorb a lot of this reporting and uh, 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 of, of um, for 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 climate aid. So that's one area that tends to come out that rises to the top of priority is building the capacity to absorb um, sort of uh, um, uh, some sort of assistance. In terms of regional organizations, yes, uh, my understanding a lot of it is to do with um, funding towards uh, SPRIP and PIF. And of course, a lot of these uh, uh, funding are to do with projects. And that tends to be what's coming out from uh, this research that we're doing is the, they want to move from just projects into programs. Uh, something that I guess the ideas of longevity is that there are climate change projects. and. 
you know, when, when we're talking to them about how China can come in, um, uh, South South Corporation can come in, that was the, the message that came out very strong from these regional organizations and then national governments is that not just to do, you know, come in through projects, but through programs. And that's something uh, now with China putting in $1 billion uh, towards South South Corporation and this discussion of 200 million of that goes to Pacific Island countries to climate change. There's a, a space there to try and define not just projects, but into programming on dealing with climate change in the region. Okay. Uh, I think the final round of questions now. Um, yes, please. Um, I just wanted to follow up a little bit. Um, the Green Climate Fund was mentioned by a couple of panelists, but probably not as much as I like, coming into this session. So I just um, had a general question, I guess, on your perspectives on on the Green Climate Fund for the Pacific, um, and in particular, I guess, what do you see from your, I guess, you know, unique knowledge of the Pacific and climate change funding? Of what are the the positives for the Pacific in accessing the Green Climate Fund, and what are the obstacles that they'll that the Pacific will face in in, um, in accessing the GCF? And I don't know if it's too greedy to just throw another. Yeah, please do. <laughs> um, I guess it's. I'm interested, we hear a lot in development these days about new funding sources, so whether it's new donors like philanthropists or new models like impact investing or new kind of payment structures, payment for results. I'm just interested, given we're talking about financing in the Pacific, um, if you have any thoughts on any of those, you know, are some of those already up and running, you know, are some of them kind of completely, you know, five years in the future or you know, anywhere in between, I suppose. Any other questions? Yeah, Bob. Thank you. My question is really to Carola, but it probably also relates to George's contribution. And I'm trying to look behind the difference in the allocation of the aid across the country. Um, clearly, you said it's more than vulnerability. I wonder to what extent it's explained by the priorities of the recipient countries. Uh, in the time I was involved, I would have said Kiribati and Tuvalu, but clearly they had it as a top priority because it's an existential threat to both countries. But uh, George raised the question about Samoa and their administrative priority on it, which may also drive funding. So, to what extent is that variable? The, expl the uh, explanation of the difference, or are there other factors that are more important? Right, thank you. No question here in the back. I overwhelming work for a firm called ITP Renewables, we deal with renewable energy consulting throughout the Pacific region. Uh, two comments, and I'll, I'll try and turn this into a question, I guess. But uh, firstly, Corolla, you made the point that many Pacific Island nations prefer or regard adaptation as more important than mitigation because their emissions are so small. And I agree with that. But I guess my comment is many of the projects that we work on are renewable energy projects designed for diesel displacement. I guess most people would regard that as a mitigation project, but I would regard that probably more importantly as an adaptation project where it's increasing the reliability of electricity supply because of the flow on effects on you know, after a cyclone keeping water supply going, keeping water treatment going, keeping hospitals open, etc. etc. 
And my other comment, not really related to that, is that so we've been working in the region for about 13 years. We work, our largest client is the New Zealand government. We also work for the World Bank, the EU, NASDAQ, but we've never worked with the Australian government. And uh, that's not to say that the Australian government doesn't put money into energy projects in the Pacific and with PNG, but they tend to do, through, do so through the ADB. And they tend to be very large projects, multi-multi-million dollar projects. Um, my observation is that the New Zealanders are very, very well regarded and roll their sleeves up, know everybody, and uh, play a leading role in coordinating all the other donors. Uh, and uh, I suppose my comment is it would be good to see the Australian government doing more of that sort of thing in the future. And I wonder whether you have any reflections on that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, question on the GCF, new funding models, um, on to what extent the priorities of recipient nations uh, drive the allocation of aid, and then on, um, on investments in renewables, particularly by the Australian government. Uh, who'd like to kick start? Maybe, Corolla, would you like to start? I can, I can um, given the last question is probably most relevant to your work. Yeah. Um, so first, I, I, I didn't really specifically answer your question before about the regional programs versus national level. And I think um, I don't think we should prioritize a specific level a priori, but more look at what the aid is actually used for. And and, and I guess uh, the regional programs, what they have as an advantage is that they have, they can pool resources. So they, they you know they have disadvantages, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the regional programs are really more effective. I think it, it's important. It, it would be very important to look at effectiveness and then sort of. Uh, take the lessons learned and apply them more widely at, at, at all levels, including also the local level, which is a key level for adaptation. Um, yeah, the Green Climate Fund is not uh, not reflected here so much because these data come up very late. So I, the OECD now only has, has data up to 2014, when the GCF wasn't up and running yet. I think um, I would expect the GCF to become a key player in the region, also because they reserved 50% of their funding for adaptation and 50% of that for small island developing states in these developed countries. So the, the, the Pacifics um, are well positioned to attract funding from the GCF. Um, the, the obstacle, I think, in general for multilateral funding in particular is that it's just um, this very high bureaucratic hurdles to be overcome. Um, and these are, they tend to be lower for bilateral aid. Um, the allocation priorities, I didn't go into explaining actually why we see this, these differences in, in how much adaptation aid different countries receive. And I think the, the national priorities um, are an important factor. So if you, if you talk also to donors and ask them, like, how do you allocate your, your, your aid? What are kind of the criteria? What is, what is the, the underlying um, factors that you, you, you take into account? And often that they say they want to have this partnership, so they want to, to sort of enter into a dialogue with the recipient countries and actually ask them what they want to have funding for. So if countries have, have adaptation to climate change as a, as a key priority and they ask funding for that, they tend to get more funding than for adaptation. Um, and, and I guess vulnerability correlates with the level of priority. So you'll see um, extremely vulnerable countries putting climate change up higher on their agenda and, and then will attract more funding. Um, I mean, generally, there, there are other allocation criteria, maybe not so important in the Pacific, but if you look at global adaptation aid and how, how it's distributed, you'd see, for instance, that um, 
um, sort of the traditional criteria are important here as well. So poorer countries, for instance, um, to some extent get, get more funding, or for the very poor do not actually get more funding for education. And that's presumably also to do with the, at least the perceived capacity to absorb funding and to use it well. Um, being a colony helps a lot in getting funding from the former uh, metropolis. So that's, uh, yeah, uh, that, that's uh, certainly an explanation. Um, and then there's different vulnerability indicators, and, and and donors at least say that they want to that they want to take into account vulnerability. But the, all these indicators, these quantitative vulnerability indicators, are questionable. And then there's also differences in vulnerability within the recipient countries. Um, so it's hard to say to what extent vulnerable groups or vulnerable countries really get more adaptation aid. Then finally, the question on renew renewable energy. And yes, I did say that adaptation was probably more important for Pacific Island countries, but that doesn't mean that mitigation is not important. And actually, they, George can probably say more about that. Um, they also wanted to sort of set an example, and they have very high, very ambitious um, renewable energy goals, sort of to show that actually it is possible to, to redu reduce your carbon footprint. Um, and many of these projects, these mitigation projects or renewable energy projects, are actually marked as relevant for adaptation as well. So there's a real marker for mitigation as well, and the markers are not mutually exclusive, so you can very well mark a project as relevant for both adaptation and, and, and mitigation, and that happens a lot. So you will see renewable energy projects in the, in the data that I showed. Great. I might actually also just briefly answer Bob's question on the allocation um, of climate change adaptation funding. So this is something that I've been doing work with Stacey Ann Robinson, who's a PhD student at Fenner School. Um, in Fiji at the moment, so couldn't be here. But um, yeah, very similar to what Corolla was saying, we, we found that uh, governance really was a, a very big driver um, of uh, adaptation um, funding allocations. So um, countries with, with higher governance, as measured by a set of world governance indicators, tended to receive more when controlling input for all other things like um, GDP per capita and population mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, Jonathan? Um, sure, yep. Um, perhaps on uh, Green Climate Fund, um, yeah, I mean, clearly a, a major um, source of funding, so going ahead, and um, the, the fund aims to, I think, allocate something like $2.6 billion this year um, from its initial allocation, so there's obviously a substantial amount of funding there. Um, a number of Pacific Island countries have already positioned themselves quite well um, that regards. Um, I think Vanuatu and several other countries have access to readiness funding, so that's one of the positive aspects of the, the, the Green Climate Fund, that it has that sort of initial um, access to funding, this sort of direct access funding modalities. And um, I think SPREP has um, you know, this sort of multilateral implementing agency uh, entity status, so can can help to facilitate um, access for Pacific countries there. Um, I, I suppose one thing about the, the um, Green Climate Fund is its emphasis on sort of leveraging private sector funding and so on. And I think that there's a question there about um, how the fund would be able to deal with um, uh, barriers to um, sort of um, commercial investment in um, adaptation or, or mitigation, particularly in the, in the Pacific. Um, so, so that's that's something that will be, a, a, I guess, a challenge. But it's a challenge also for Australia too, which um, aims to to increase the sort of um, its role in leveraging private finance as well. Um, Maybe I'll just get comments on, um, on on other sources because I know that um, 
a bit low on time. I suppose the other just general comment, if this is my uh, last answer, was um, and I know that um, I've outlined some um, some priorities for the, the APRO program to deal with. This is obviously based on what's accessible from public sources and so on, but um, you know, my understanding is that um, you know, the A program is definitely aware of sort of the challenge of you know, how to implement the, the $1 billion commitment. Um, so I, I expect at least that we'll watch this space and hopefully there will be more sort of um, uh, publicly accessible information about uh, what's happening quite soon. Thank you. And um, Ian, can we keep it short? Yes. Uh, the, the thing about the maybe the GCF is, is that it that it, uh, it does provide options for direct access. But I think there is a problem within our region is that because SPREP is a regional implementing agency, that it, that it isn't providing the, the support to Pacific Island countries to build their capacity because they're in competition. Uh, so there is, a, there is a problem there. Uh, just to pick up Oliver's comments about uh, whether renewables are, are an adaptation strategy, I, I think we also have to look at that um, more, more in that context. Uh, just coming back from Fiji, you know, one of the biggest problems was the power lines being knocked down by the cyclone, and therefore, uh, you know, having standalone power systems is clearly an adaptation strategy. But they have to be bulletproof because, you know, I also saw smashed up uh, solar panels uh, there as well. And the, the ones that I've seen um, located in Tokelau, I can't imagine they're going to last very long. George. Yeah, um, I guess I'll just answer from Samoa um, and how, you know, how it used the vulnerability and that's where mainstreaming uh, works. Um, and that's how this whole government itself was built upon. You know, the finance that it received in the 1990s and how it did all its reform. I mean, the instigator that the, uh, how reforms came about in 1990 was through money that came through Cyclone Offline Valerie. And so that they've been able to harness that uh, idea of vulnerability of natural disasters in terms of the tsunami 2009, they capitalized on uh, Cyclone Evan in 2012 in, um, I guess, uh, bringing in those funding that then they turned around and sort of spread it right throughout the whole economy. And, you know, leveraging it, I sort of thought that's one priority that they're looking at is uh, natural disasters. I think something that they don't talk about in, um, in open, but it's something that's very embedded within the cabinet is food security. And that's how you see the re uh, a lot of the funding that deals with agriculture uh, and the agriculture industries funneled under climate change um, is, is sort of to uh, kickstart, uh, bring back um, uh, the agricultural industry. And in terms of infrastructure, you hear that term of climate proofing roads, climate proofing schools. And so they use the, 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 you know, the, the, the language of climate change within these proposals that go through under the climate change rubric to get access to these funding, you know, climate proofing roads, climate proof harbors, climate proof um, 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 uh, the current project there, the airports, you know, so this, and it, it's, it's all because they have a system where it's, everything is brought together under the cabinet, uh, 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 cabinet development committee, which is, 70, uh, I think it's around 70 to 90 top CEOs of all ministries, the permanent secretary, the ministers, all sit in one room under the, with the prime minister sort of saying, who's doing what, who's doing this, who's doing this. Um, and at the same time, there is a, a function of a body, which is the aid coordination system, which includes the climate uh, coordination system. They only deal with eight or nine uh, development partners. 
So if you want to be a development partner in Samoa, you have to sit at that table and they meet every three months. That's where you tell us what you want to do, we tell us this is our list of priorities. And so that system has helped this idea of mainstreaming, uh, the easier transition from um, development sectors and bringing in sort of climate change from the eight sectors they had before in 2007 to the current model of bringing uh, climate change to all 14 models, it helped that coordination faster. And I guess how um, they've been able to attract more funding through um, using adaptation or mitigation or climate change rhetoric in their proposals. All right, well, um, please join me in thanking our presenters today. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.